Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, welcome to SACPA. I'm the uh, fill-in moderator today. Uh, we were supposed to get a student to moderate, but uh, not only did a student not show up to moderate, we also have a student, one of the student speakers, not show up because he's uh, under the weather this morning. So we've, we, we got a very adequate fill-in for, for our student a speaker. Same topic. Today's topic is <laughs> is the systemic crisis in the world, and if so, how can it be resolved? Uh, I should uh, go through the motions and tell you all about what we usually have to do here, but I won't because you all know. Uh, so I'll get right on to the uh, topic. Uh, our speakers are was supposed to be C. Marshland, and but we have Michael Orr here, and he will be up first to give you his idea about how to fix things. Um, Michael is a fourth-year political science student with a bit of an attitude. <laughs> he doesn't expect to win any popularity contest, but... Uh, he strongly believes his ideas and that, and that truth is not a matter of consensus. Uh, as such, he'll be relying on the merits of his arguments rather than the pop, on the popularity of his uh, exposures. So uh, the, our second speaker is Shannon Phillips, a candidate for Lethbridge West in the as an NDP. Uh, she's not speaking about politics today per se, but she is going to talk about our value system. Uh, so she'll be a very adequate fill-in, I can tell you that. So without further ado, I would like to invite Michael to come up and uh, tell us where he's at. Thanks, Ned. Uh, how's it going? It's nice to see everyone here. Uh, I thought maybe someone might be eating at this point, so maybe someone wouldn't pay attention. I'd be able to get away with some more mistakes than I'm probably going to get away with, but I guess food is served afterwards, so this is slightly unfortunate for me. Um, as some of you may already know, there was a student speaker challenge at the University of Lethbridge, and two people uh, went to the final rounds. I was one of those people. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to take the, uh, the, the first place, but I did come in second, which I'm very happy with. Uh, the speech that I'm going to give to you guys today is about systemic adversarial bias, and uh, basically my idea, the idea that I wanted to speak about is that People are, are creating systems. Uh, people people exist within a system which creates structural conflict in areas in which it doesn't actually exist. So uh, that's kind of the introduction. Without any further ado, I'll just jump into the, the, the meat of the speech, as it were. Uh, the question which we have been asked to address today is, is there a systemic crisis in the world? 
and if so, how may it be resolved? The answer that I have come to and the process through which I have arrived at this answer required me to examine the current state of the interactions between individuals and institutions, cultures and economies, governments and countries on an international scale. The difficulty in selecting an appropriate subject for this speech competition lay mainly in deciding which of the main categories of crises which we are currently faced with was broad enough in scope to qualify as international. So I decided that the best way to select a topic to speak about today was identifying which crises and its related constituent components were responsible for the creation of the greatest many other systemic crises, the root cause, as it were. And the answer which I have arrived at is that the concept of relative gains within the economic, social, and political arenas is responsible for creating serious adversarial structural conflicts in situations in which they do not actually exist. What I mean by this is that there is a culture within our system which promotes evaluating decisions based on the relative gains that one makes as a result of their personal decisions. Too often, we are evaluating decisions based on the idea that if we cannot make a gain, no one else will make a gain at our expense. This is a byproduct of the Cold War era socialization regime. The negative aspect of this is that we now have an ingrained notion that to make a gain, someone else must make a loss. This is particularly problematic when we are addressing mainly subjective questions because the concept of relative gain suggests that we can objectively evaluate the subjective decision-making process. In simpler terms, what I'm saying is that we have now internalized the idea that there will always be an objectively best answer when in actual fact this is not the case. As a perfect example of this, I will draw upon the structure of this very competition. I'm just going to take a quick break from what I have written here just to kind of put this into context. Uh, the first time that I gave this speech, there was uh, really eight competitors, so I thought that this was quite actually uh, quite smart. But then as the field got, got smaller, it slowly lost its weight, but uh, I'll just... Just to put that into context, as it were. Um, in an earlier iteration of this speech, I had remarked that you, as the judges, uh, there would normally have been three judges sitting right here in the front. I'd be directly addressing them at this point. Uh, would likely hear eight excellent ideas and would select one as objectively better than the others. This is a fallacy. The reality is that even within as progressive an organization as the Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group, Structural adversarialism is so strongly ingrained that we assembled here genuinely believe that by holding this speech competition, we can say that one of these eight sets of original ideas is objectively better than the others. What this generally means within the context of the Cold War metaphor, which I previously used, is that in areas which require subjective answers, we have become strictly polarized to select answers based on the idea that objective evaluation is always the most desirable outcome. This ingrained tendency towards polarized outcomes is a result of the Cold War socialization regime, limiting our ability to rationally and morally evaluate our decisions and our ability to use compromise and nuance in our personal and public affairs. The truth is that free access to information has an effect that extends beyond the socializing effects of the state, beyond the traditional socializing effects of language and race and religion, the Internet has now created a new socialization regime in which each connected individual takes part. The average 20-year-old from each individual continent now shares more than they have in common, more in common with each other than they ever have in the history of our planet. With access to the same information, people are coming to the same conclusions, and that is that you do not need to make your gains on another individual's loss. 
The reason that this is a pressing concern now, more than it ever has been before, is that we no longer have the cloak of conformity to protect ourselves from making evaluations of the moral consequences of our actions. Under the same system which sterilized dissent, we were also insulated from the moral consequences of our actions because they were taken as part of our involvement of an ins- in an institution larger than ourselves. And this is simply no longer the case. So that is why I think it's very important that we begin to use a new set of criteria to evaluate our individual decision-making processes. And how do we do this? The first step, I believe, is to abandon the theory of intellectual absolutism, the idea that subjective questions can have a best answer. The nature of subjective knowledge contradicts this idea, which once was a necessary component of the Cold War paradigm. We must learn and teach others, even from a very young age, that all subjective concepts are at least theoretically equal, which means to me that when we have discussions about what is right and what is wrong, we have to let individuals come to their own conclusions about what is humane and what is moral, keeping careful not to tread on the importance of their held beliefs. If we can do this, we will have taken a significant step forwards in shedding our adversarial systemic bias and realizing the utopian ideal of systemized cooperative effort as the rule rather than the exception. I will leave you all with a quote from Tolstoy's book, The Raid, in which I cite, Can it be that there is not room for all men on this beautiful earth under these immeasurably starry heavens? Thank you. So um, I'll be the fill-in, fill-in uh, <laughs> moderator because <laughs> Knut just stepped out. So I'd like to introduce Shannon Phillips. I will uh, warn you in advance that uh, she gave this talk already today at TEDx on the west side. So she's very experienced at it. And I gave her 45 whole minutes of notice to get here. So we're very appreciative. She's a great friend of SACPA. And uh, welcome, Shannon. Is it Hi, I, I guess uh, this is my opportunity to um, participate in the Student Speaker Challenge, although it's been a good uh, 14 years since I was an undergraduate. Um, however, sometimes very kind people uh, think I'm still a student. I am not. <laughs> I'm a 36-year-old mother of two, but never mind. <laughs> so um, I'm going to reiterate my TED Talk that I gave this morning. Um, and that talk, the, the theme that they gave us was creativity and leadership. And I tried my darndest to cram my ideas into that particular frame. Uh, I must confess, though, I am no good at those kinds of themes. Uh, All I ever really know to talk about is politics. (laughs) So that's what I ended up talking about. But I tried to frame my thoughts in terms of our values, in particular my values as a social democrat. So I I want to start with a bit about me. I work for the Alberta Federation of Labor as a a policy analyst. uh, And I do work with the media on issues, with government and so on, with workers, on issues that matter to 145,000 working Albertans. This year, the AFL is actually celebrating its centennial, which I think many of you have heard already this year. Uh, And the Voice of Working Albertans was actually founded here in Lethbridge in 1912. 
I am also, as a bit of background about me, the volunteer chair of the Women's Space Resource Center here in Lethbridge, where I and a small group of other dedicated volunteers and uh, staff ensure there is a feminist voice in this community. Now, in my experience, the only way to get to a leadership role, see, here's me trying to bring in the theme, um, in my version of politics is to first and foremost be tenacious. If you steal your resolve, leadership roles accrue to you as a matter of default. And the best way to make sure that you can keep going in the face of odds is if you stop being what people think of as a leader. This means sharing out responsibility roles to others. It means building up people around you and giving them the chance to shine and teaching your skills to everyone who is willing to learn, especially young people. I have yet to find any other way of keeping going. Now, I am a social democrat in Alberta. I work for the labor movement. I am a feminist. I have worked in the past for the NDP, both provincial and federal. So I suppose this is your cue to scoff and ask what I'm doing still living in this province. I want to talk a little bit about that reaction. I know some of you just had it, and I'm going to challenge it. I would hazard a guess that most of the people in this room hold the same values as I do. In fact, decades of public opinion polls of Albertans show massive support for universal health care, for equality, protecting the environment, and public education. And so on those grounds alone, I quibble with this idea that my values are outside the norm of what most people in this province think or believe. In fact, I think we are all probably pretty united in some key views, such as this one. There are some services that do not make good candidates for the profit motive. For example, making a profit off the sick or making a profit off of assisting the elderly or making a profit off caring for people living with mental illness or disability are not activities that are consistent with most Canadians' values. Those are, by the way, the values that built a vibrant and strong public sector, the very values that built some of the most productive, advanced countries in the world with the highest standards of living. In most of the industrialized world, it has been understood that a decent and public social safety net is precisely what makes the private market economy function in an orderly fashion. These are the lessons that most industrialized countries learned after the Great Depression. But what we see now is the opposite. Over the past 30 years, Canada has decreased its social investments to new lows. We have at the same time increased inequality to the point where Canadian wealth is as concentrated in as few hands as it was in the 1920s. We have the highest levels of poverty in our country since the Great Depression. So part of being creative in one's leadership is to establish common ground on our shared values and then use those connections as a springboard for action. But there is sometimes, often I would say, something in the way of that action. Many people acknowledge that we broadly share social democratic values. They are, after all, Canadian values. But there's a profound defeatism when it comes time to do the work of having to weave them back into our public policy after three decades of unraveling. 
That is why I titled this talk, Optimism of the Will and Pessimism of the Intellect. It is a quote from Antonio Gramsci, who was an Italian socialist leader and thinker who died in prison when he was jailed by Mussolini's fascist thugs in the 1930s. In philosophy, Gramsci's quote is often interpreted to mean that we as human beings are able to hold both pessimistic and optimistic views at the same time. But many take the pessimism of the intellect portion of that quote to mean that it is smart to be pessimistic. We hear this in Southern Alberta all the time. And take a further leap to a place where we imagine ourselves to be more clever than the optimists because we take the negative view. In modern times, I call this something of a hipster affliction. It positions caring about anything as uncool. Therefore, the smart way to be is aloof and negative and defeatist because you will never be disappointed. We must disabuse ourselves of these notions. First of all, this kind of thinking is not clever unless to you means clever means the same thing as lazy. It is not a way to undermine the status quo. It is a way to perpetuate it. It is not a way to reject the way things are. It is a free pass to all those in power who would have you just sit down, shut up, and keep shopping. Values like diversity, equality, environmental sustainability must be articulated if they are to persist. Without ongoing expression through action, our social democratic values are subordinated to other values, such as greed. And so if I have one message to my irony-saturated generation, it is this. You may fancy yourself too smart to care, but the forces of greed, inequality, or militarism depend on your silence. And so you have a choice to make. If you do nothing, you are implicating, not exempting yourself. Inaction is action. The sort of too-cool-for-school school of thought, this idea that only very silly people even bother trying, also asks us to buy into instant gratification. You know the argument. I signed a petition once. The government went ahead with whatever it wanted to do anyway, so it's no use in even trying because I was not instantly rewarded. This mindset is, in my opinion anyway, a spoiled child view of the world, that we are always entitled to get what we want and we ought to be praised for success at every turn. About 10 years ago, I was in my mid-20s and beginning to get a little tired of failure as a left-wing person in Alberta. I was tired of losing. I was tired of being part of the same organizations, saying the same things to the same people. And just at that time, I had the great privilege to do a radio interview with Noam Chomsky, one of the greatest thinkers of the past century. I was a wide-eyed graduate student at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And of course, I asked him one of the most hackneyed, predictable, and ridiculous questions one can ever ask a public intellectual, which is this. How is it, I asked him, that you can keep going when our side always seems to be on the losing end? It was the eve of the illegal U.S. invasion of Iraq, and I had just participated in the largest demonstrations in Alberta's history on the steps of the legislature with 20,000 other people. But Chomsky said something that I will never forget. He said, in the United States, they had just had larger demonstrations against the invasion of Iraq than they had ever had against the war in Vietnam. 
He he added that people expected to see immediate change when we do one thing, like attend a rally. Not just young people, but older people too. Impatience is not exclusively an infirmity of the young. And if you expect that your one action will lead to success in neat mathematical fashion, you are doing battle with reality. There is no final score. What I took from Chomsky's answer was that none of this is a game. Democracy, public service, advocacy, agitation, organization, building community, these are ongoing jobs. They are like housework. You cannot ever finish them, but they must be done. The American invasion of Iraq is an instructive case study, I think. Speaking out against it for me was a formative experience because I was in my mid-20s and just starting my career in politics. A decade ago, we were organizing, protesting, arguing against the outright lies perpetuated by the media about things like weapons of mass destruction. We were objects of derision. We were ridiculed and scorned. Our own provincial government in Alberta enthusiastically endorsed that invasion and war. And remember, too, that the millions worldwide who spoke out against that war were not successful. The Americans did it anyway. 650,000 Iraqis died as a result of that war, the population of the city of Winnipeg. Five million orphaned children in Iraq right now, equal to orphaning every child under 14 in Canada. By those standards, we were catastrophic failures. Us with our pathetic little placards and our little fits of protest here in Canada. But our country, because of mass public protest, and despite what our own provincial government wanted, did not send troops into that war. And what a difference a decade makes. Our arguments were right, and almost every commentator, expert, or person with a smidgen of moral compass on either the right or the left of the political spectrum now admits it. And so, no, we did not technically win. But we did something significant by organizing and speaking out. Keep that in mind the next time you see mass protests, whether it's occupying Wall Street or exercising civil disobedience to stop the Northern Gateway Pipeline from Alberta's oil sands to the B.C. coast. As I expect, you will see British Columbia's First Nations and a host of environmental groups do in the coming months and years. Ask yourself whether the people who are being labeled or maligned are being thus because it serves someone's agenda, particularly someone's profit agenda. And whether the seeming one-off of a protest is actually part of something much larger, an articulation of a worldview, a set of values, or a vision of the future. Ask yourself if those larger value statements about justice or the environment, equality or peace, are views that you probably share. I do also want to share with you a local case study about the expression of values. When Women's Space Resource Center here in Lethbridge lost our federal funding, a story with I'm sure many of you are acquainted, I went to Ottawa to testify, testify before the House of Commons Standing Committee on the Status of Women. At that committee, I made many compelling arguments as to why our funding should remain for financial literacy services for low-income women. I indicated on a budget of 150000 we served over 850 people, 
And on an MP's salary, we served 1% of the population of Lethbridge in the course of a year and a half. When I got back to Lethbridge, people said to me, oh, uh, you did a good job of telling them how important women's space is to Lethbridge. For sure you'll have our funding reinstated, right? And it was all I could do not to laugh. Because this is not about who has the best arguments. It is not about who has the right facts, even. Of course our funding was not reinstated because we are an explicitly feminist organization who have done political advocacy over the course of our 25-year history. It does not matter our value to this community here in Lethbridge or the fact that our services probably save government money in the long run. What matters is our values clash with those of the current government. And so we have had to be creative to keep going in the face of great odds and fewer resources. We are in a pitched battle over values. It is, I believe, the greatest challenge to our generation and has as its foundation the existential question of what Canada is and whose interests it serves. It is, however, a time-limited conversation. I have not mentioned the coming climate crisis yet, but it is upon us, and how we organize human affairs in response could potentially contribute to greater equality and even a different greener economy. But as we continue to do nothing, the time for that is running out. The more likely scenario will, will be that the unpredictability wreaked by climate change will undercut our efforts at making a better world. Our current standard of living is unlikely to persist, at least for the majority of us in the Western world. But there is nothing else to do except keep going. And so if you take up the challenge to defend our values, and if you keep going in the face of great odds, you will exercise creative muscles you never knew you had. You will fight and fight and fight and lose. You will learn that the foundational concepts of democracy, sustainability, and equality are an ongoing experiment with many outstanding questions and few resolutions. You will make some great friends. And at the end of your long days, you will go home, do the dishes, and think of your work as an activist like housework. It needs to be done, but it is never done. And so I will leave you with a quote from Tommy Douglas, who was the founding leader, of course, of Canada's New Democratic Party. You say the little efforts I make will never tip the scales where justice hangs in the balance. I don't think I ever thought they would. But I am prejudiced beyond debate in favor of which side will feel the stubborn ounces of my weight. <laughs>